Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Do animals have a consciousness like ours, or are they just the instinct-driven machines we learned about in school? Do they have a sense of morality? What is the real difference between us and them? Hey there, and welcome to the 522nd edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I am Ben, and those mammalian questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. And this evening we bring you a uh, very distinguished author on an especially unusual subject. And we do welcome your phone calls. The number locally is 401-766-1240, and from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, 800-449-1240. Dr. Dale Peterson earned his Ph.D. in English from Stanford University in 1977. As an author, his first few books were about psychiatry and computers, but most of his 17 published books have been about animals, their lives, meaning, and fate. He has written about primates, including chimpanzees, along with elephants, giraffes, and many others, and he is a longtime collaborator with with and biographer of Dr. Jane Goodall, the famed chimpanzee expert. Currently, Dr. Peterson is a Radcliffe Fellow at Harvard University. His website, www.dalepetersonauthor.com. So, Dr. Dale Peterson, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Well, thank you. All right, it's great to have you uh, here. So, Oh, I'm sorry, did I step over step uh, over your uh, words? Uh, well, I just, uh, are you Paul or Ben? I'm trying to get you straight now. The younger one is Ben, so me, okay. and then the older one is my dad. Yeah, the very okay. much older one, yeah. <laughs> great. Alrighty, so before we uh, talk about animal consciousness, maybe um, we should uh, get clear on what you believe consciousness actually is. So what's your definition? Well, um, let's try it uh, in reverse. Um, We know when we're unconscious. So let's assume that, uh, you know, if you're not unconscious, you have some degree of consciousness. And um, so I think this is true of humans as well as non-humans. Uh, humans just have the ability to talk about it, and uh, because we talk, we can also reflect on it. But that doesn't mean that other animals are not conscious. So this is a vision of evolutionary continuity. We're evolutionarily continuous with other species. Alrighty, so um, what would your definition of... Well, we do know what's unconscious, so knowing... Um, well, self-awareness, maybe? I suppose, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So uh, many physicians say that uh, consciousness is non-local, so not inside our brains, basically, and is even shared with uh, the whole biosphere. Like when you see birds flying in huge flocks in perfect synchronization and other groups of uh, behaviors by animals, is there evidence of non-locality in their consciousness? Um, I'm not sure what you mean by non-locality. Well, could you? Okay, physicists who study consciousness have a theory that we tend to agree with in our own work, and that's that the memory, the imagination, has never really been located in the brain, and that it's it's shared in, uh, I suppose, in a sense uh, that Carl Jung might talk about the collective unconscious, only they they do tend to go beyond that. So is there evidence of that in animals, as far as you've you've seen? Well, um, the evidence I've seen is just sort of mental experience, and um, consciousness for me is um, being aware and um, having uh, making decisions and having choices. So, uh, and even animals that we generally think are pretty stupid, I think, are quite uh, quite aware. They're sentient. They have sensation, and they make choices. 
uh, and you know the animal that uh, I've been writing about recently is giraffes, and um, they're quite amazing animals. I had a um, one experience that I'll I'll tell you about, which happened uh, a couple of years ago. I was in the Namibian desert looking for desert giraffes. Desert giraffes, and and I brought a well desert adapted giraffe. So mm-hmm. giraffes are uh, tolerant of arid environments in a lot of places. Uh, you know, they're on the African savannas, but in the Namibian desert, they they are extremely well adapted to that environment, which is pretty uh, pretty difficult. They don't actually need to drink water. They can get enough uh, moisture from the uh, from the plants they eat. As long as they can find plants, they can survive. Hmm. I took a uh, photographer with me to the to the desert, and uh, we had done a lot of photography elsewhere, in uh, mainly in Kenya, and had a lot of good luck photographing giraffes. We found them to be very accessible, and we could approach very closely. Uh, when we got to the desert in Namibia, we had the a terrible problem of just getting close to the giraffes. They were very skittish and they weren't used to people, uh, unlike the giraffes in Kenya. And um, so we spent days just, you know, we'd get within a half a mile, it seemed, and then they'd just look at us and turn and run. Uh, and we tried all kinds of, um, you know, enterprising things. We tried to go approaching them slowly. We tried tricking them. Uh, which didn't work. We tried sneaking up, and they have very good uh, eyesight, and they're also, because they're so tall, uh, they can see long distances and see over obstacles. Uh, and we tried everything, and then one morning we saw some giraffes, and we said, well, you know, the heck with this. We're just going to approach them directly and see what happens. So we uh, put the vehicle into four-wheel drive, and we just went... Um, over this very, very rugged, rough landscape, going directly at the giraffes and approaching, you know, within, say, uh, half a mile and getting a little closer. And, you know, the moment when I expected them to turn and run, just at that moment, the the, uh, the vehicle dropped into a, a pit and uh, we, we had a flat tire. It went, oh, dear. But, you know, just the explosion of the flat tire was like a gunshot. And I thought, well, you know, this is all over now. This is the end of it. Now, as it turned out, we got out of the car, and I just stopped paying attention to the giraffe. Uh, we, we got out of the car. My friend, the photographer, got out, and he just sort of stood there watching the giraffe. But I was slamming the door shut and getting the, you know, the jack out and getting the, the jacking up the, t- the uh, car and changing the tire. Next thing I knew, I had looked over, and the giraffes, instead of running, were coming closer. And they had never seen anybody change a tire before. That's all I could figure. And they were curious. Now, um, if you want to read about giraffes being curious, you can read popular accounts. Uh, uh, there's a popular account written by a, a giraffe expert about a similar experience she had where she did something unusual and the giraffe, instead of running, went came closer to see what she was doing. But there's not a single thing in the scientific literature. So, and the reason is, you know, 
because curiosity is a mental experience. And it's just very hard to write about it. But, and so, you know, we sort of assume because it's not written about that giraffes don't have mental experiences, but they do. And, you know, even scientists will, will confirm that. So that's a kind of a, you know, interesting story that I think is, gives you an idea of the sort of thing I'm thinking about. Yeah, certainly, yes. Uh, well, I'm thinking, too, that, uh, well, not to dwell on this non-locality thing, but the idea of group consciousness, in a sense. Um, I believe that it's true that, uh, say, a, her- uh, a herd of a zebra will mm-hmm. stay still and not be alarmed if a lion with a full stomach walks by. Uh-huh. Whereas if the lion is hungry, they somehow know, probably because of the mannerisms and the, the, the uh, actions of the lion, and the, then they all take off. I mean, have you seen anything like that? I have not. Um, and I, I, I mean, it, it doesn't, nothing you tell me surprises me very much. There are some nice stories about chimps, and I've met a lot of uh, people of, uh, you know, chimp owners. Uh, individuals who have owned chimps or worked with chimps very closely. And some people will say that they think that uh, chimps are psychic. <laughs> and I actually don't believe that. But, um, but uh, you know, people do insist on it. And I think what really happens is that chimps, because they don't have language, um are very, very, very astute about body language and about, you know, postures and facial expressions because they're, they have the similar, uh, facial expressions to humans. Um, so, you know, what looks like psychic perception is, is I think, is just really a, a very high level of sensitivity to, to, to ordinary perceptions. Might that not go together, though? And I'll tell you what, I don't, I don't, we don't like the word psychic either because it's got so much baggage. Right. And it's despite the, the, the uh, title of our show, we, uh, you know, try to go a little deeper than that. However, I mean, the principle uh, behind it may be valid, and I wanted to get your opinion on that, in the sense that um, our own ancestors or their own ancestors uh, might not have survived uh, had they not had some sort of, uh, whether you group awareness, environmental awareness, or whatever you want to call it, you know, people might pin the term psychic on it today, yeah. and if it, feeling like they were being watched, or in situations yeah. where they wouldn't be able to see body language or, or hear anything, uh, or maybe there are unconscious environmental stimuli. I mean, I mean what, what say you on that? I mean, uh, you know, they kind of get nervous when a predator may be around but can't be uh, apprehended with the five senses. I mean, is that... Yeah, maybe that's what people mean. Yes, I I don't know. I've seen, uh, certainly seen plenty of animals that are, you know, living in social groups in which they're very, very sensitive to each other. And um, whether that's something beyond the five senses is not anything I'm prepared to talk about. Uh, I I think, um, you know, let's just look at the five senses and, and work from there. Uh, I've seen, you know, wonderful, um, coordinated hunting with cheetahs in which they, it just seems all automatic and they, they're certainly very, very attuned to each other. So, is that what you're talking about? Well, I guess I'm trying to, to uh, to set up a, uh, some sort of contrast 
between what what we learned about in school, essentially. Right. And, and I didn't study by study philosophy, not biology, right, yeah. in the sense that animals are, as we said in the intro, in, instinct-driven machines. Everything's yeah. based on instinct, and there's no creative thought or, or consciousness in, in the human sense, because you know we think we're at the top of the right. the pyramid, which is sort of arrogant, in my opinion. But uh, well, then the contrast being that there is uh, some sort of... Oh, well, uh, moving on to the next question Ben had. Uh, why don't you just uh, ask the question? We'll, we'll try to set maybe a contrast there. But. Well, you indicated um, with with uh, one of your many books with the uh, the uh, title, um, The Moral Lives of Animals. So do animals have morals? Yes, they do. Okay, so how does, how does that fit into the entire business that well, we're talking about? Well, you know, I think you have to ask yourself... Um, if if individuals are selfish, which they are, what what enables them to live in groups? And for me, the the behaviors and the psychology behind those behaviors uh, that enable group living are what we call morals in humans. Okay. So morality, if you think about it, every single thing that is you're taught is good, morally good. Uh, has to do with um, being being pro-social, pro-social behavior. Your, hmm. your behavior affirms your social connection. Okay. And everything that we think is bad is anti-social. That's and true. through this system, through this system of morality, we humans are able to live in groups. If we didn't have it, we would not be able to live in groups. Well, how do animals live in groups. I mean, there are lots of group living animals. So what is their psychosocial system that enables group living when they are individually as selfish as we are? So there's this system that is both internal and external in the sense that it's socially enforced. Well, the selfish... Uh, that, I'm sorry. Go ahead, please. No. It's the system that creates group living, and that's what I call morality. Okay. All right, uh, certainly a very basic definition of morality. Uh, the, the selfishness that is manifested in pretty much throughout the biosphere by individuals, if there is any right. really such thing, is based essentially on the desire to uh, pass on one's own DNA. Am I yeah. correct? Okay. Yeah, right. Okay. All right. So it's not just self-preservation; it's self-preservation of the the bloodline or the of the gene of the gene exactly. Uh, and I want to get your thoughts on this. When we lived in the wilds of Cumberland, Rhode Island, uh, many years ago, my work schedule as a journalist put me at home during the day where I was the main caregiver for Ben and his older brother, along with 18 chickens, 12 ducks, 9 cats, 5 rabbits, 2 geese, and a partridge in a pear tree. Uh, there were also a number of wild animals that seemed from time to time to adopt us or vice versa. I had a chance to deliberately observe at some length, the lifestyles, habits, and what I can only call, uh, doctor, the, the customs of all these animals, in individuals and in groups. These included courting and mating practices, of course, but also procedures for induction into the group, uh, interspecies yeah. adoption techniques, yeah. the very civilized, I thought, expression and exercise of leadership, social pecking orders and rituals when it came to hunting and food, and even funeral rites. Wow. Now, I don't think I was reading into this. I mean, you know, as a journalist, one would hope I would be a trained observer. But it was amazing. Right, yeah. It was astounding, and I've never really gotten over it. Um, yeah. 
What say you about all those things? Have you had that sort of chance? I'm sure you have, uh, to observe animals, whether domestic or yeah. wild. It didn't seem to make any difference. Uh, yeah, I think that's true. Uh, I, I, you know, um, some of my favorite ele- animals are elephants. Uh, and, you know, elephants are just so uh, amazing, partially just because of their size. Uh, but I think they're also uh, very empathetic animals. So um, it's one of the things that I love about elephants, and people have these wonderful stories about elephants protecting, you know, humans or protecting members mm. of, you know, individuals who are not members of their own species. Uh, and there's a wonderful, um, I actually have a video of this, um, a wonderful video done by a friend of mine, of elephants, uh, forest elephants in this place in the middle of Central African Republic called the Zangasanga Bay. And I've been there. It's a great place because the elephants come there. They, it's like a mineral spa. It's this big swamp in the middle of the rainforest. And all of these uh, forest elephants love to come there and just get the, you know, into the water and wade in the mud, and um, I think they actually eat the mud. I think there are some minerals that are um, part of their, you know, they have a nutritional need for those minerals. Um, My friend who was there in 2001 uh, happened to be there at a time when uh, there was a dead elephant uh, there, and she actually watched the elephant. It was a baby elephant. She watched the elephant lose consciousness on one day, and then the second day it died. And she had the presence of mind to put up a video camera, so she videotaped this scene of this dying elephant on one day and a dead elephant on the other day, and she videotaped just had the camera just going with no, you know, it was on a tripod and just going. And it turns out that um, there were 129 instances of elephants walking past this dying and then dead baby elephant. Uh, Of those 129 passes, 128 of the passes, the elephant actually stopped and showed some kind of response. Mm-hmm. And um, she did an analysis of this afterwards. Um, she said that fifty uh, percent of the responses were fear and avoidance. So the elephant would look at this baby who was in trouble, and they'd turn and run. Uh, and that makes sense because this is an area where there are poachers, and so if you see another elephant in trouble, you it's not unreasonable to be afraid. There might might be a problem. But the interesting thing was that in 15% of the cases, uh, instead of running, the elephants tried to protect the, the the baby elephant. So they would, you know, try to they sort of made this posture and uh, tried to drive away any other elephant or any other animal that came close. And in 18% of the cases, um, they try the elephants actually tried to assist the dying and dead elephant Mm. so either protective or assist you know if you combine the 15 and the 18 percent protective and assistive you've got you know about a third of the 
forces um, were uh, attempts to uh, either rescue or just at least protect it. Mm-hmm. baby and what fascinates me about this is um, first of all the, the videotape I've seen um, tells adds some depth to this story because when you look at some of these elephants trying to rescue the baby they're making this these screams that are um, just chilling because they're they're kind of ang- screams of anguish you know here they're they're communicating uh, sense of, you know, here's this little baby in trouble, let's help. Uh, and they're, they're ama- you know, I've never heard elephants make that noise, and it's just a, you know, I can't define it quite, but it seems to me a cry of anguish. Uh, and the other thing that fascinates me about this is it's almost a perfect parallel of the, the Good Samaritan story in the Bible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, the story where uh, there was a man who was um, on the road to Jericho. There was a man who was um, robbed and left naked and, you know, taken. all of his possessions were taken, left to die on the road. And um, during the day or during the night, three men passed by. Two of them, when they saw the naked, dying man, turned and ran. <laughs> and one, you know, one-third... Uh, stopped and helped. <laughs> so, That's true, yeah. so is this? You know, this is an elephant good Samaritan story for me. That's cool. Uh, on the issue of chimpanzees, I know you have experience with them. Uh, I've seen, read articles and seen videos on uh, chimpanzee examples, of, among other things, of mourning. What can only be called mourning mm-hmm. when one of the youngsters has has died. Um, that seems to certainly echo what you've said. Yeah. You know. So. Yeah. Now, I, I'll, I'll share this with you, and I, I apologize for anyone in the audience who's heard it before, because I, I mentioned, I just, I just, one of the things I couldn't get over was this, what essentially was a, a funeral ritual yeah. at our old place, which was kind of a, Ben, you were only four when he moved out of there, but it was kind of a magical place, and all these animals, and it was all woods, yeah. it was just lovely. <laughs> and, but the house was too small when Ben was born, so we had to find a bigger one anyway. In my fault. Uh, well, no, of course not, but you know what I mean. I know. I know. So anyway, the... the um, the cats uh, had uh, an, an alpha who might have been a male or a female. There were nine of them, mm-hmm. a male or a female. And one day the uh, the female died. And it looked to me like snake bite. Now, supposedly there were no poisonous snakes in Rhode Island, but I guess nobody told the poisonous snakes. It looked at all, I knew there was a copperhead around. It was kind of like the uh, sheer con of the neighborhood, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. So I was removing the body. Um, and the, the the other eight cats sat around in a circle, very respectfully. They followed me to the burial site. Wow. And uh, they uh, sat around in a circle again while I, I buried the, the uh-huh. cat. Her name, well, it was a fever. Her name was uh, Kitty Wells, actually. Yeah. And they took turns sitting there in pairs for a mm-hmm. month, every single day. Wow. And they would hang around on our back deck, which um, would go between the house and this shed that I used as an office, and also where the chickens lived. It was quite a quite a work environment. Uh, they they um, would sit and sit as though she was still. There was this cushion she'd sit on, you know, like some kind of throne, and they still sat there as if she was still there. Wow. For a month, 
And I just, you know, I, just, I never got over that, I, I, you know, because I, I took the time to observe what they were doing. And a lot of people don't do that or certainly don't have the time. Right. But the time I was working for a daily newspaper, working in, you know, at night because you put out the morning paper right. and the night before. So uh, I yeah. had the chance to do that. And Jonathan's older, uh, Ben's older brother uh, kind of saw this whole thing with me. So uh-huh. I just think animal consciousness, that, that's what really struck me. I said, boy, you're really onto something with that. So speaking of chimps, how did you get to know Dr. Jane Goodall? Well, uh, you know, it's kind of a long story. I, I, the, the larger question is how I, how I started writing about animals. Mm-hmm. And um, um, the answer to that is I just did. And uh, I one day decided I wanted to write about primates uh, because I thought they were smart animals, so I figured they'd be interesting. Uh, and the truth was I didn't really know what a primate was. Uh, but I did learn, and uh, through reading about them, and then one day I realized, well, I had to see primates. So primates are monkeys, apes, and prosimians, which would include, include lemurs. There are about 425 species in the primate group. Chimps are one species. Uh, I didn't know that, <laughs> but I, uh, I taught myself through uh, traveling around the world on my own, uh, and going into tropical forests in South America and down the, went down the Amazon River and went into the Amazon rainforest. And I went in through Africa, uh, southern India into Borneo and Sumatra. Uh, and basically I was, you know, a bit like a bird watcher. I had my list of the 12 most endangered primates of the world that I wanted to find. Uh, so I did this and I wrote a book about it. And uh, that's how I met Jane Goodall. You know, just she wrote the introduction to the book, and then I met her, and we decided to co-author a book on chimpanzees, which we did. Excellent. Uh, so that that was it. And I've known her ever since. She's quite an amazing person. She's still around. She turns eighty this year. Wow. Uh, and still going strong. She's a very very tough and uh, resilient person. God bless her. Okay, we're going to take a break here. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone Valley. We'll be right back with our guest, Dr. Dale Peterson, on animal consciousness. Stick with us. Everything you know is wrong. Hi, I'm Ben Eno. And I'm Paul Eno. Check out our show, Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, here on ON 1240 AM on Mondays in our new drive time slot at 6 PM. The paranormal is not what you think it is. You're going to examine the whole thing from a whole new perspective on our show, and we expect that you're going to be very surprised. Do not check your brain at the door. You're going to need it. Be there. ON Radio. I wanted to remind you of several of the charities Ben and I have adopted. There are quite a few. You can find them all at BehindTheParanormal.com, our show website. One is, uh, is the uh, USACares.org. USACares is a wonderful charity that helps financially helps U.S. veterans and the families, especially the families of those who may have been killed in action. And they do great things as far as just sending out checks when you can't make your mortgage or whatever. The great group. Also, uh, BuildersHelpingHeroes.org, that is a local group here in uh, Rhode Island, and they recently worked with Homes for Our Troops to help build a home uh, for a wounded veteran, wounded Marine in Burrillville, Rhode Island, right in our listening area. Uh, great group, that's uh, BuildersHelpingHeroes.org. 
Also, Canadian veterans advocacy, too, for our neighbors to the north who have been with us in the war on terror all along. Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles. It seems like far away from our listening area, but we have a lot of listeners in California, too. YMC, or Youth Mentoring Connection, youthmentoring.org. They do some wonderful things with at-risk youth in South L.A., and they use indigenous wisdom to do so. And there's nothing weird about it, nothing strange or odd. I mean, it's, it's just applying good old traditional wisdom to some of the problems of modern life. And they have done wonderful, wonderful things for these youth and turned them into really, really productive citizens. So check that out, youthmentoring.org. So let's get back to our guest, Dr. Dale Peterson. And uh, we, we talked about how you had been um, cooperating on a book with uh, Jane Goodall, um, the chimpanzee situation there. And uh, so what, what, after all this experience, you've had quite a bit of it, what, uh, what do you think animals can teach us? Well, um, they can teach us a lot. I think they, uh, but we have to, we have to be prepared to learn. Um, basically, they can teach us that we're not alone in this world. Um, you know, when I speak about animal consciousness, I basically think all animals are conscious. Um, I do uh, tend to focus on mammals, so, you know, I, I think snakes are probably conscious and, um, you know, various non-mammals, but um, it's, the, you know, usually when I say animals, I'm speaking about mammals because we're closest to mammals, and so mammals are the, the group that we can most fully connect with. And I think we can learn they can teach us if we allow them to, and what they teach us is that we're part of a larger community of yeah. consciousness. Let me give and, our phone numbers once again. I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt, because uh, no, I always forget to do that. Uh, locally, 401-766-1240, and if anywhere in the U.S. and Canada, 800-449-1240. I always forget that part, and people say I should. Anyway, so I'm sorry. Sorry to have interrupted. Doctor. Go ahead. You were talking uh, about... Well, I think, you know, for, for example, just... Um, you know, let's talk about domestic animals for a minute. Um, you know, I've always had dogs, and I love dogs, and I think dogs, so I'll talk about dogs because I happen to love them, and I, sure. I'm familiar with them. Uh, you know, dog, dogs teach us to, to, to trust our emotions, and our connections with dogs are not, you know, it's not intellect, it's emotion. And it's really, a, you know, when you reach that point where you really do know your dog and communicate through emotions, you know, you, you love your dog, your dog loves you, that's kind of a remarkable thing and uh, a very special thing that you learn, again, you know, that we're not alone. I'm, I'm kind of, I find it ironic that we spend all of this time looking for space aliens and thinking that, <laughs> you know, here we are, this lonely species on the planet well we're not we shouldn't be lonely we've got you know intelligent life all around us and a very sentient emotional and conscious life all around us so this is it's partially a belief but it's a belief based upon a lot of experience and uh, a lot of thinking about it that's a great point it's funny here in uh, Woonsocket Rhode Island uh, Richard Gere was here a few years ago to make the film Hachi you know, I don't, I'm, you're probably familiar with it. It's, it's, uh, I think universal. I'm not sure. 
but they use the uh, we have a very quaint uh, depot in town here, a uh, railroad depot, and they, they use that as uh, the basis for a true story that actually took place in Japan and uh, an uh, Akita breed of dog uh, yeah, became Akita. Yeah, and uh, he um, what happened in Japan was that he was a lost puppy and was somewhat of, uh, shipped from Asia, but was somewhere else in Asia, but was was lost and came into the possession of this Japanese business. Uh, man, and he would take the train every day, and the dog uh, would go to meet him at the station. He'd get out of the yard however he could, and uh, then when the man died, the dog kept going to the station and literally waited there for I don't know how long, but he eventually died there. Everybody knew about him, and they'd bring him food and, and this sort of thing, and there's a statue of the dog to this day. I think it's, uh, I don't know if it's Tokyo or where, but uh, that film, an American version of that film, was made here in in, in town here, and and uh, good old Richard Gear. Richard Gear, yes. yes, he loves Winsocket, so I think it's the second film he's made here. But anyway, uh, that sort of thing uh, is is real. Uh, the whole business with with, and I've seen this on two occasions in in my own work over the decades. Is you've got uh, someone uh, who is very much loved by a dog uh, passes, and the dog will go to the grave even though it doesn't know where it is, and yeah. sit there, that kind of thing. Um, so, so that that kind of uh, matches up the sort of love going beyond what we usually think of as love, yeah. and because yeah. most Westerners don't understand love in the first place. So, yeah, yeah. So uh, that uh, just just a thought on that. Um, we uh, tend to be cat people uh-huh. in our uh, neighborhood, and uh, our group of uh, funeral goers were cats. There <laughs> we were discussing <laughs> yeah. earlier, and uh, we tend to have moved into a cat neighborhood here as well. Uh-huh. So. Um, I, I'm thinking of. Um, did you want to ask about Karen? Because uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I feel like this would be a, a little yeah, because uh, we're getting interesting into, yeah, conversation she's point. Into this. Yeah, so we have uh, one, one of our one of our uh, former guests, uh, friend of ours, a woman by the name of Karen Anderson. It's not like she'll never be on again. That's true. That's yeah. true. I, I I don't know why I was speaking yeah. like that anyway. So she is uh, she call, she is an animal communicator um, uh-huh. and is. I don't know how to describe it. How would well, you we usually it? don't get into too much of the psychic stuff. No, we, no. We think it goes I was deep in that. But she is, I suppose you might call an animal whisperer, so yeah. to speak, in the popular parlance. And she's really yeah. pretty accurate. Surprisingly. Uh, yeah. Um, she was accurate about two, two of our cats, one of whom lives next door, but he thinks he lives, you know. And she, she described them both to a T, and she lives in the state of Washington. Of course, we're on the East Coast, as you are. Yeah. Um, have you ever run into, uh, well, what exactly... How how would you evaluate that sort of thing? I mean, there seems to be. It's well, not that she's looking at their body language because yeah. she's you know thousands of miles away. I mean, do you think there's anything to this? And I suppose this gets back into the non-locality of consciousness and uh, communication and quantum physics, maybe or whatever. But what say you on all that? Have you ever encountered um, examples in your own life of animals being sort of I, don't know, I suppose more than animals in the the emotional sense of the or, uh, uh, well I I I haven't to be honest but I but I but I think the animal whispering idea is a very good one and I found um, I'll tell you a little story um, and I, I met this woman who had a zoo in Florida it was one of these awful roadside zoos and it looked kind of like a prison and there were chimps and there were gorillas and orangutans uh, but she was a delightful woman and I liked her very much even though I thought the zoo was not quite what, what I would choose for um, you know apes yeah, zoos have but, improved the last 20 years mm. 
but she uh, she told me about you know times when some of the animals would escape, some of the chimps and gorillas would escape, and uh, you know for me, chimps are frightening in a sense because they're so strong. Yeah, they they're they have a superhuman strength that is just unbelievable. And uh, so I said to her, you know, well, what do you do when they escape? How do you get them back in? She said, well, you know, the thing that I do is I talk baby talk to them. And I said, well, why do you do that? And she said, well, she said it's impossible to be threatening if you're talking baby talk. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's kind of the principle of for me is animal whispering. Uh, and I, you know, I had a. My last two dogs were very dear to me, uh, and they both died recently. But one of them was an incredible problem. She was—they were uh, a Saint Bernard uh, Husky Chow mix, and wow. so one of them was great and very calm, and the other was very hyper and very skittish and very athletic. And so it was the one who was very hyper. I had lots of trouble with and. I think one day I realized that I was being too aggressive with her. And it just sort of suddenly just, you know, it occurred to me that I'm scaring this this dog. The other dog didn't mind at all, but this one, I was scaring her. And so once I realized that, I just changed. And I, so, and I began to realize that the quieter I was, the more she paid attention. So for me, that's the, you know, the animal whispering thing is you you speak very, very quietly and and then they pay attention because they can, you know, because they do what we do when somebody whispers, which is you focus on that. Hmm. So I think that's the, for me, that's the secret of whispering is, is not, there's nothing any, nothing um, paranormal about it, to use your term, uh, that I know of, I mean, it could be, but. But uh, but I think it's a really wonderful way of communicating because it it's not threatening. It's like the baby talk. It's unthreatening, but it also causes at least some animals to really focus on you. So we have this idea, you know, you speak strongly and you have a dominant personality, and the dog will pay attention. Well, sometimes that's true, but I think the whispering may be a, a great thing to do. So <laughs> I'm trying it with my dog. Well, why not? Uh, I think this is a good time before we burn up this hour for you to tell people about your website, your books, and where they can oh, find okay. out more about you and get the books, etc. Sure, sure. The website, Dale Peterson Author. Uh, and the books, uh, you know, Elephants, Giraffes. So Giraffes is my latest book. Uh, Elephants is recent. I've written the only full biography of Jane Goodall, who's been, you know, we've been friends for 25 years. Uh, I have the book you described, The Moral Lives of Animals. Um, you know, quite a few books in that line. So mm-hmm. uh, I think, you know, Dale Peterson, author, look in the website and you find the, the whole list of uh, books. Um, yeah. Very good. Okay. On the issue of, uh, there's been some discussion over the past 10 years, especially that I've noticed anyway, on animal language. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking particularly of birds, which is my favorite yeah. subject in that yeah. regard. Uh, I w- it was odd enough to learn, I guess in the late 1960s, it was discovered that uh, birds learn 
their songs, songbirds anyway, learn their songs from their fathers, supposedly. I haven't been aware that that yeah. finding has changed. And that uh, they, uh, some scientists in Germany <laughs> actually uh, had baby birds and they taught them German folk songs. <laughs> and so the Black Forest suddenly in the late in the early seventies was full of these birds singing German folk songs. We're talking yeah. about a tourist attraction. <laughs> but uh, many ornithologists had cat fits. Pardon the whatever. But but it uh, it was very strange. So, but uh, that was an odd finding. Also, the notion that um, birds have certain tones by which they speak to each other. As a matter of fact, the researchers have identified verbs, nouns, uh, perhaps thirty or forty different. I suppose you might call words uh, to us uh, formed by the sounds a certain species make. And uh, now they're working on mammals, and I haven't read anything lately. But uh, have you found evidence of that in animal interactions? And uh, perhaps uh, what's the greatest expression of consciousness? I would think language. You know, so uh, what say you? Well, I, I actually don't. I mean, I think that consciousness doesn't require language. So language is what gives us um, you know, our collective intelligence. And this is what really sets us apart from um, other species, is we have this very complex symbolic language that we're very sophisticated with. That's not to say that other species don't have um, lots of communication abilities. Um, but I think that, you know, our language is, is, is really, it's not our brain it's not the big brain that's done it. It's the language that's given us this collective intelligence and enable us to do all of the magical things we do. But, um, you know, certainly uh, lots and lots of animals have a good deal of communication, uh, some of it symbolic for sure. And uh, I, I love all of the sign language that's been done with all of the great apes and um, mm-hmm. all of that. Oh, yeah, just, yeah. But, um, uh, so I don't know anything about the, the bird language. I do know about this, uh, the African gray parrots, which are being, uh, which have been taught to have very, uh, you know, to speak in human language in English or whatever language you choose, and, and to uh, understand what they're saying, and to, yeah, and they have yeah. been demonstrated. I mean, Irene Pepperberg is the one who's done the that's right, the yeah, most distinguished work on this uh, with a, a parrot named Alex, who was able to you know tell the difference between color and shape and um, purpose and um, you know number uh, and could do it, you know, in a very sophisticated way. So you could, you know, um, which is pretty remarkable. And, um, you know, there's this collie in, um, um, border collie in Germany, I, I guess it's in Germany, who's, um, uh, I'm trying to think of his name, who, uh, um, I think his name is Rico, who, who uh, understands uh, 200 Spoken words, um, so you know, and it, this is good science. So uh, it's it's pretty impressive stuff. I uh, met the gorilla Coco. And, oh, uh, that's right. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Coco, and that, yeah. that was another another wonderful, um, I think, uh, sign language experiment and a work with um, teaching uh, a great ape to do sign language. I remember uh, there were t- it was a pair of horses. They lived in Gloucester, Rhode Island, and you'd see them at events, and the, the, the farmer would oh, bring really? them for hay rides and things like that oh. in the fall. And they only spoke French, 
because they'd come from Quebec. And they moved down here to Rhode Island, and they, they were, uh, you'd have to say, instead of uh, left, you'd have to say, uh, gauche, and, you know, pull the, and they, or, or a doigt, and they go right. So uh, I, I couldn't get over The farmer said, well, they only speak French. I've tried to teach them English. <laughs> so anyway, I don't know. They may, they may have gone to the great beyond by now. But, uh, but it is, and the interaction between humans and, and animals is, is really astounding. And so I suppose for... Um, we might want to reach a little bit here, and perhaps you've thought about the evolutionary uh, background of some of this. Uh, despite the fact that there are 223 genes in the human genome that shouldn't be there, if evolution as we understand it is true, uh, there do seem to be certain relationships between animal consciousness and our consciousness, which supposedly evolved from theirs. I mean, can you say anything about that as far as... Uh, what similarities you see between animal consciousness and human consciousness? You have already mentioned some, but well, I think you know the, the, uh, an enormous depth of similarities. I think uh, you know we we share in common with animals. Here, I'll refer to mammals, but you know we have all of the five senses. Uh, we uh, make choices. We make decisions. We have emotions. Uh, I think. We share all of these things with at least all of the mammals, I believe. And, you know, there's incredible depth in that. Uh, and even self-consciousness, you know, when you look in the mirror and you recognize yourself, um, there are at least, you know, a, a number of animal species who, who demonstrate that as well. All of the great apes, elephants, um, dolphins, magpies, uh, and... You know, self-consciousness for me, and and humans when they're over the age of eighteen months. So, <laughs> so sometimes they seem more conscious before that, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. So, do you say? I mean, are you going to say that before uh, humans have are able to recognize themselves in a mirror that they're unconscious? I don't think so. No, not at all. You're not going to say a, a six-month-old baby is unconscious, and likewise with. You know, animals who don't recognize themselves in a mirror, I would still say they're conscious. So, um, you know, this evolutionary depth, this continuity goes far back. I mean, we've been mammals for, we're part of, you know, the mammal group goes way back past 65 million years, and we've only separated from the, the mammal line six million years ago, a short while ago, and we only have the normal human brain size in the last 200,000 years, which is a very short time. Mm. We only have language in a shorter time than that. I would guess around 100,000 years. Um, so, you know, 100,000 years out of, you know, 65 million year long history is not much. Nothing. Um, and, you know, we've only had human society as we know it, you know, civilization and settled society for much shorter time than that. Um, so, you know, when I've, I'll tell you a story just uh, just to change the subject a bit. Um, I, I spent a day with some chimpanzees in West Africa, and uh, I was, they're wild animals, and the only reason I was able to do it was I was accompanied by the, the scientist who was studying them. And these chimpanzees, and these are wild animals, they use stone tools. Hmm. <laughs> and uh, it's amazing to see it because, um, 
you know, they'll go along through the forest, and then there, there are these nut trees there where the nuts are so hard that there's no way to break them, break them open unless you have a tool. Even strong chimps with their strong jaws cannot break the nuts open, but they've developed this tradition. It's a cultural tradition of among this group of chimps in this particular area of using stone tools. And they uh, they don't carry the tools around with them because they don't have pockets. You know, there's no way to carry them around. So they leave the stones uh, underneath the nut trees. And then when they come up to the tree, they pick up the, the hammers. And there's a, so it's a hammer and anvil. And they pick up the hammers and they put the nuts right on the anvil very carefully and with great deliberation. And they even when they do this, you know, they're standing upright like a person because they need, you know, some of the stones are heavy enough that they actually use both hands. Uh, so they stand upright and they walk with this, or maybe they gather in the nuts in one hand and they're able to hold, you know, bring the nuts over there. But there's a lot of upright walking. And then they squat over this thing. They put the nut on the, the stone anvil. They pick up the stone hammer and they crack open the nut. And it's just like walking, watching people do it. I mean, it's just the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. That's something. <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, and you think, well, they don't have language, but they just, but they've got tools. You know, they've got their this. And I've come across these stone tools without the chimps around. And when you look at them, they've been using them long enough that they're artificially rounded. So you actually cannot distinguish these from an artif- a human artifact. You just, you know, this has the same quality of this artificial um, nature to the to the tool. Mm-hmm. It makes you wonder what the next step's going to be. <laughs> well, well that's some big right. monolith there, and they'll yeah. touch it. That's right. Well, one of the things that uh, is rather poignant, I think, that stands out is that humans seem to bear grudges and animals don't. I wonder what the difference is there. In other words, unless an animal, at least in my observation, has been severely mistreated, then they don't seem to uh, bear grudges, and even the grudge is probably just a fear of a particular individual. Um, however, humans bear grudges. It's, it's a rather ugly yeah. thing, and I, I wonder what the I, difference was and what happened I, to... I, I don't agree with you on that. Okay. Uh, I, I think bearing a, a grudge... All it requires is memory. And um, so most animals can, most mammals can certainly distinguish individuals. So even sheep can tell, uh, you know, recognize individual sheep, uh, which is strange to me. But <laughs> let's just, I mean, chimps, for example, are one of the frightening things about chimps is they bear grudges for a very long time. And they're also very deceptive so that they won't let you know <laughs> that they bear a grudge until the moment is right. Well, aren't they closest uh, to us genetically? Yeah, they are. So they're the, you know, they're the ones that are you you might expect this to be to happen, but it's rather dark. You, it is dark because uh you know, they will wait if they dislike somebody, they will wait until that moment when that person is vulnerable and then they'll attack. Uh, and I think this is true of other animals, too, certainly of elephants. Hmm. Uh, you know, the old elephant never forgets. Well, I think some of it that's true, that they, they, they certainly recognize individual humans, and they certainly have attitudes about individual humans. And, you know, when you think about it, a lot of animals who come back, 
come in contact with people, recognize individual people and have attitudes, well, you know, isn't uh, having an attitude about one person basically then you have the potential for grudge because this person I don't like, this person I do like, uh, and I don't like is, in essence, you know, a form of grudge. No, anyway, I, I would take, uh, I, I, I don't think it's true that only humans have grudges. I, yeah. I think, you know, any chimp expert will tell you story after story about chimps. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, we're just about out of time, Doctor. And uh, again, Dr. Dale Peterson, why don't you give us your website one more time? Okay, uh, Dale Peterson, author, all one word. Dot com, com. right. Yeah. Very good. Well, thank you for joining us. Very interesting uh, conversation. Lots of food for thought. Well, great. Thanks, Paul and Ben. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye. All right. Dr. Dale Peterson, everybody. Ben, take it away. Alrighty, so on Saturday, uh, April 26th, my dad and I will be speaking at the New England Parafest at the Crown Plaza in Nashua, uh, New Hampshire. And there will also be some other great speakers on several paranormal subjects. That includes Tom D'Agostino, a guest on our show uh, a number of times, actually. And uh, we will off- raffle off uh, two tickets to this event on our April 7th show. Uh, that is a $90 value right there. So find out more at EssexCountyGhostProject.org. I might want to see if I can just interrupt you for a second. I might want to say the people should just uh, enter the contest the same way they did the last one for the New England UFO Festival, and that's just uh, send your, your uh, name, address, and phone number uh, to, uh, of course, um, yeah, to just that, to Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com. And you can also write to us here at uh, WOON 1240, and that's 985 Park Avenue, Woonsocket, Rhode Island, 02895. All right, you can visit our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can find uh, nearly 550 free podcasts of all of our past shows from uh, both ON1240 and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. Also, check out our site at www.NewEnglandGhosts.com, where there are case studies and photos, along with articles by my dad. And listeners continue to report problems with the podcast, uh, the site, is, seems to be under constant attack by a person or persons unknown, and we, we just we're, we're trying to keep up with that. But if you, if there are podcasts that don't work, just let us know, and we'll we'll try to see to it. In the meantime, you can also always read books instead of the computer screen, and there are several books by myself, uh, Barnes and Noble Nook, e-reader at Amazon Kindle, uh, Amazon.com, etc. Uh, but if you buy them directly at BehindTheParanormal.com, I will autograph them for you. That's a big deal. And uh, you will help us keep all those podcasts free. Also on our sites, you'll find direct links to several charities Ben and I have adopted that we mentioned during the break, including USA Cares, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, Youth Mentoring Connection as well. And the website for Youth Mentoring Connection is www.youthmentoring.org. And next Monday, uh, February 24th, right here on WOON 1240 and com, we will welcome researcher David Howard, who will discuss ghosts and geomagnetics. So get your questions to us at paul at behindtheparanormal.com, or you can call in, or you can also go to our Facebook page, like us on there. You can send us a message that way, if that is uh, any easier for you. That is a good way to write to us, by the way, uh, for open line shows. Now, we haven't had a lot of them lately because we've got so many guests and half the slots, uh, but you can write to uh, Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com or go to the Facebook page for the show, and uh, you can write to us by the message gizmo on, on that one. So, Okay. Uh, also, I should mention that um, 
Okay, we we gotta go. Uh, we love you. Th- we love you too. Yeah, we leave you this evening. <laughs> Sorry, a thought-provoking quote from Mahatma Gandhi: "The greatness of a nation and its moral progress can be judged by the way its animals are treated." Unquote. I'm Paul Eno, and I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us in our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.